0: This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect.
1: I grew up in a, under the influence of making things. So, so being a, at the intersection of food and design had always made me feel I, I'm I'm at this really lucky position to always think about other people's needs. Right? Uh, every architect will tell you the the significance of having the highest level of empathy possible for your users because that's at the heart of your work. And how true is that? That's also at the heart of a hospitality at restaurants.
0: If you've ever thought of changing careers, you won't want to miss Nikki Chang's story. She went from being a successful international architect to follow her passion and joined the Junzi Restaurant Group as the head of strategy and design. She was so lonely for her homeland in northern China. She missed the food. She missed her family. Nikki found a compatible group of young thought leaders who are inspired by their Chinese culinary heritage, and she wanted to join them to share it with the world. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Nikki, it is so great to have you here. And it's true that you're the head of design and strategy for Z Kitchen, which is an awesome restaurant group in New York and Connecticut. But I really wanted you to be here because I know you are food obsessed <laughs> and that you made a phenomenal career change, which I think everyone is interested in doing. <laughs> you were a really high-powered architect and doing amazing restaurant or hotel projects all over the world. <laughs> and at some point you decided you're just going to give it all up and work <laughs> With the guys at Gen Z Kitchen, so how did this come about?
1: Well, thank you so much for having me here. That is a question that every other day I get um, someone asking me about. I think my dads do ask me, "Why did you quit architecture to join a restaurant group?" Um, it it it's not as simple as like that. Now that I think back, there were a lot of small steps and and people I met and things I've done. That led me to this decision among which perhaps the most important one was this crazy little project I had from my apartment called Table for Six so while I was working at Skimmer Owens Merrill Um, on some of the biggest hotel names um, I could ever dream about. It was such a privilege to work there among some of the most talented people. But we're also young architects, you know, struggling with budgets and like working way too hard and ordering simulas every day. So I felt completely depleted from, you know, the kind of ritual and love of home cooking I grew up with. So I made a little project, and like every architect, I scheduled myself and like had all the resources laid out in front of me, and created a little project. So <laughs> I would invite a young chef to cook with me. I would primarily play host and like do the wine pairing, and I'll uh, you know come up with a budget to allow him or her to cook anything he or she can dream of, and we invite six strangers. Most of them are through referrals. Some of them come through the website to sit at my apartment for a six-course
0: meal. (laughs) This is incredible. (laughs) Nikki, I had no idea. (laughs) When did you start this? Um, This this is quite a fantasy life. When I was a junior
1: at Skimmer. So that probably was in 2015, I want to say, or fourteen. I was working on a tower project in China from New York, so the time difference was a little bit crazy. Um, It was a 98-story building, and I was also lucky enough to stay on the project after we won the project to design the hotel floors.
0: That was your job to design the hotel floors? Yes,
1: uh, with Grant and Hyatt. It was a fabulous project, and I fell in love with hotel design um, and was lucky enough to be placed on three more hotel projects afterwards. I think... It was really at Skidmore where I found my love for hospitality design and you know, designing these like special semi-private public places for people to really have a fabulous time. Mm. Mm.
0: <laughs> this is really so fascinating that you just conjured this up and made it happen. So it was called Table for Six. Yeah, <laughs> and you just did this on your own, and you actually created a little <laughs> mini. Pop up restaurant series yeah. in your own apartment. <laughs> yes, it was totally illegal. I had a
1: host, <laughs> had a host speech prepared. While when you know, if we get busted by the FDA, um, <laughs> I what was I, the speech? <laughs> what were you going to say? Like it was just a couple of friends hanging out, and no one is paying anything. Yeah, so I, I live in a tiny little apartment in Hell's Kitchen. It's a th- you know third floor walk up. We're lucky enough to have an open kitchen uh, overlooking the dining area, just big enough for six feet People. And I knew, you know, it, it's ironic because I, I'm i the only daughter of a typical Chinese family. And I've never had a chance to even learn how to cook because everybody cooked in my family. I've and, heard that before. They always anything. like shush me out of the kitchen because I'm <laughs> completely useless there. But, you know, missing that... Ambience and, and the, the social aspect of family cooking so much, I felt I had to do this. So the first meal, for disclosure, I cooked it myself and it was very stressful. <laughs> and, and having to entertain six people and making sure everything was timed right, um, you know, being in charge of all the recipes was a lot. Um, but I was very lucky to, um, met, to meet A young chef at that time, he's from Paris originally, and he was cooking at a Michelin star restaurant, but he could only touch one thing. And then he, you know, found this little project and wanted to join. So we cooked for a year together. Um, You did this for a year? uh, We did this for a little bit over two years. The Parisian Chef went back to Paris. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, I met through him a chef who's trained in
0: Spanish food. So we're able <laughs> to,
1: <laughs> to cook another year of Spanish food.
0: <laughs> I am <I'm> just so <laughs> delighted hearing this story, just tickling every bone in my body. <laughs> it's just such a fantastic idea. Um, what kind of food would you cook with some of it? Yeah. You said because you really miss something from home. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, And you grew I, up in China. I grew up in China. I I grew up in the 80s
1: and the 90s of a very typical Chinese, you know, middle-class family. Um, When I think of home and kitchen. I think of the Slovenian style apartment building my parents owned. They converted, they expanded the kitchen into the balcony and converted part of the balcony to be the kitchen. Mm -hmm. This is where a lot of the families do in that part of China. And everybody cooked. My grandmother, my grandfather, my mom, my dad. And again, ironically, my mom being like the mei of the family that she's the youngest of four sisters she didn't learn how to cook properly (laughs) (laughs) and like after she met my mom my dad who is like the dago of the family the the big brother of five so he actually cooked better than my mom uh, (laughs) and my mom learned slowly and and you know me being the only daughter i could observe a lot of the rituals in the kitchen and the the festivities around food of course every chinese family like you know has their own family recipe and food has always been a very pivotal part of the family's social life, not only throughout the holidays, but just day in, day out, every day.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you whether this was a daily, you know, ritual where everyone was together and and yeah. many hours were spent preparing a meal. Three meals a day. Three meals a day. Yeah, it starts with breakfast. And I'm hearing a lot of <laughs> joy around it. In fact, yeah. you, you are just, you know, laughing and beaming, talking about it, remembering all of yeah. these beautiful
1: times. Three meals a day. Three meals and, a day. Um mm. It I, I don't know if – and, and uh, of course, like you know, coming to the U.S. for college, it was a revolution to know how um, Chinese food in America is different from the Chinese food I grew up with. I still remember my first week in college. I I, I studied art history and economics at Williams College in Williamstown, population 2,500. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and one, <wine>, you. <laughs> <laughs> and, the,
1: and lots of cows. Um <laughs> It was such an eye-opening experience because not only, like, I-, I grew up in a city. Seeing, like, people at Williams, it, it was just a very... Culture it a shock. Very, it, w- it was college, America, and Williamstown all at the same time. So it was a <laughs> lot. But I still remember my first weekend with my entry mates. Because well, Williams College was organizing these entries, if you were first year. And all my American entrymates gave me a pamphlet, you know, the the classic three fold pa- pamphlet for Chinese takeout food, because oh. they thought I could help order takeout for them. <laughs> and I didn't recognize like ninety eight percent of the menu.
0: Oh, that's so funny!
1: I had <laughs> never seen General Sha's chicken. Uh, I've never seen orange chicken. I didn't know what <laughs> egg foo young was. And when the f- meal finally came, it came, of course it came with the classic finale of fortune cookies. I had never seen a single fortune cookie in my life before until that moment. So I put the whole thing in my mouth, and they were like, "Stop! Stop! There's a piece of paper in it." I was like, "Oh!" <laughs> I was like, "Oh my god!" Um, it was it's, it was such a fabulous time, but I also learned that you know throughout. Or well, especially most recently in my with my career at Junzi, I slowly came into the realization and later appreciation of this entire parallel history of Chinese food in America. It's not what a lot of people, a lot of Chinese people, think as like fake Chinese food. Mm-hmm. It's just another vernacular cuisine that has its own life and future, perhaps, and hopefully, you know, Junzi will be part of um, shaping that future. So, yeah, I uh, that was my first
0: year uh, in America. Well, it makes me really want to ask you to go way, way back when you were a little girl, then let's go back to China and your kitchen and the balcony t- yeah. transformed into a kitchen. What are you remembering? What are some of the really vivid taste memories mm. from that time that really would Tell us what traditional, real Chinese food is. And by the way, what what city were you? Yeah, in? I was
1: when I was a kid. I was born in Tianjin, in the northern um, harbor city. It's it's kind of the equivalent of Boston, I would say. Mm-hmm. Similar port culture, a post-industrial city. It's supposed to be the third biggest city in China, but it's got a v- much more laid-back culture because. It doesn't have the political pressure of Beijing. It doesn't have the economic pressure of Shanghai. So it's just kind of very laid back city with a, you know, really big food scene. And,
0: <laughs> Sounds like um, a nice place to grow up.
1: Really yeah. And really good healthcare and education. My, uh, my father's side of the family um, is from uh, northern China. So... A lot of the food I grew up with has that
0: influence. Um, and what would that be? Are there certain flavors or spices or herbs or dishes that are yeah. associated with Northern China? Yeah, we take
1: noodles for example. Like, there's a lot of people are familiar with ramen noodles, which is yes. served in soup. That came from a Chinese type of noodle that's la mian, that's pulled noodles served in broth. But in Northern China, it's usually banmian, which is stirred in sauce, oh. served without broth. That's one of the dishes we serve in the kitchen, and I grew up with tomato egg sauce tossing in this noodle, and with lots of seasonal ingredients in it. Like a lot of home cooking throughout China, wherever whichever part you are from, is always very seasonal. It's, it's about the celebration of your home traditions and flavors, mm. and the you know available ingredient
0: of the time and place. You're from so very fresh. It's very very fresh. spontaneous, so very, very of the moment. Yes. But Nikki, there's something to me about the idea of noodles with tomato and egg <laughs> that just you know wouldn't strike me as a northern Chinese dish. But I yeah. know this is this was your ultimate comfort food growing up. Ultimately, ultimately my comfort food. And it's um, also on the menu at Junzi Kitchen. Yes. So when we come back, we're going to hear all about Junzi Kitchen, <laughs> your connection to it, the amazing menu that they have and more about your story. Yeah. Darkness falls, mysteries unfold, has been Here's a cooking tip to
1: share. Chili oil is always a secret sauce. Imagine this is like Williamstown, Williams College dining hall, and I would go into every... They would know where I sit because I have a jar of chili oil on my desk, on my table. So the jar of chili oil travel with me and you add it to anything it just makes everything much more delicious and it doesn't have to be like spicy just a little dash of it just how you use paprika sometimes is to just to bring all the flavors and layers together at Junsu Kitchen we have a chili oil that's super simple it's just straightforward um, Tianjin it's actually my hometown Tianjin chilies uh, dried chilies and it with all the little seeds in it um, and it goes into super hot oil that's it, and it comes out with this beautiful, fragrant, incredibly fragrant um, clear oil. It's like this orangey tangerine color with still the chili flakes in it. So yeah, different regions of China has like different styles of it. Sometimes it's cooked with garlic, sometimes it's like a little bit fermented. But whichever style, you should try and taste it and put
0: it in everything. Give it a try and pass it along.
1: A lot of people don't understand that my life is truncated into two parts, two very distinct parts. That that was marked by that fortune cookie. (laughs) That was marked by by you know receiving this just absolutely incredible scholarship to attend Williams College for four years. That changed my my trajectory as a very average (laughs) high schooler in China at the comfort of my parents' home to. you know, bringing two suitcases and going to college alone um, on a flight to Albany Airport and mm. then onto to a bus to Williamstown, um, everything changed afterwards. And I think that 180 degree shift, of the perspective changed my way of thinking just about everything, especially perhaps the meaning of food and family, Mm. um, what I had, you know, taken granted for and what I really have to be proactively to, you know, take initiative
0: to learn by myself. Nikki, do you remember the feelings when you were coming over? I mean, I don't know if anyone else in your family had ever been such a trailblazers you were um, um, what were some of the emotions
1: it was it's interesting my my grandmother i uh, i remember being taught how to hold chopsticks for the first time as a child how old like, how old one was one when p- they do I that i don't remember i don't even remember it was probably I mean, like, like a 2 year old yeah it was probably 3 years old <laughs> as soon as i could grab things I remember when my grandmother mother like always says like when I hold my chopsticks she's like she's going to go far because I hold my chopsticks to the very end mm. <laughs> a very far end she's like oh she's going to go far and I did I think I I can't I can't thank you know, for having a family who is not only extremely supportive and loving they are some of the most open-minded and you know, democratic family I've ever met. Of course I'm biased, but uh, my parents met but they didn't meet through a traditional setup marriage.
0: Are many marriages arranged yeah, I mean, still? Even in at China? that
1: time they met in late seven the late seventies, I think, right after the cultural revolution ended. A lot of people were still um, you know, meeting their love of life and, and family members through arranged marriages. But my family, my, my mom and dad fell in love, um, you know, out of their own will, and against all odds and the family backgrounds difference, they got married. So I think Such a, a great lot story. of that, yeah, I think a lot of that like came, um, like was passed down to my generation. So whatever mm. I set my mind to, they are always, they always try to understand and they always do everything they can to support me, including the decision of going to college across the world. So they didn't. They knew I wanted to study both art and science, and that was not an option in China. But I applied to a couple of colleges in the U.S. and got in and give them the... Uh, a mission package, and they were like, Okay, I suppose you're going.
0: Well, so, they really gave you roots and wings. Yes. Yeah. And, and Nikki, just quickly, where did you go to uh, school for architecture? Where did you get your degree?
1: Oh, I, I, uh, I ended up getting my master's at the Yale School of Architecture. Okay, uh, which where... sort of
0: connects to the story about Z. Yeah. And you also talked about food and family, and I'm hearing that this is a real theme in your life. This is the undercurrent that has kept you flowing in all of your decisions, including creating tables for six. Uh, becoming an architect, art, science, and then you went to Yale.
1: Yeah.
0: And you you met a group of guys, and I want you to tell the story, (laughs) but I want to carefully say the name of the restaurant. So it's called Junzi, J-U-N-Z-I and it means something yes yes what, is, what
1: does it mean <laughs> yeah I, I always tell people it's pronounced like jay z but like junzi <laughs> um junzi uh or in chinese junzi first tone and third tone junzi means traditionally um, you know way way back in the time before uh, 200 bc i suppose uh, it, it literally meant the the son of the emperor or mm-hmm. the son of god um but then Confucius came around and introduced the first arguably democratic way of like looking at this term, and he's saying basically everybody is a junzi if you conduct yourself a certain way, you respect each other and mm-hmm. you help your community, and you tell your story truthfully, and everyone is a junzi, right? So that was first first time maybe in my at least in my memory that it was used to describe um, the ideal traits of a person. And of course, in our context, it is, we, we want everybody who comes through the door of Gen Kitchen to be a Gen Z, and we we want everybody on our team to relate to this term in a way that is is not gendered, is not um, about your family history or your even education education background. It's about how you do things and how you think of yourself.
0: And that food is the big connector to, to all of <laughs> yes, this. all through food. Yes. All through food, yes. Yeah. So so how did you meet the guys who started this yeah, company? Yeah, it was actually through
1: kitchen, uh, Table for Six, full circle. <laughs> I met the architect, Xu Hui. Uh, he, he designs all of the interiors of the Kitchens at one of my Table for Six. And we also, with Xu Hui, um we curated this. Young Designers Forum thing called APT, Architectural Practice Talks, um, in the city. So Xu Hui was my um, co-organizer for that organization. And Xu Hui, one day after a meal said, look, you have to like come check out this project. We were building this restaurant. I was like, yeah, give me a card. I'll, I'll come someday. And he was like, no, 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 you have to come now. So we went uptown to back then the construction site of Junzi Number 1 in New York City. Um right by Columbia University and sitting between kitchen equipment and like tiles. I met mm-hmm. um, the CEO uh, and founder of Junsu Kitchen, Yong Zhao and and Yong like told me his vision of, you know, cultivating leadership and collaboration through food. Um, and That's ultimately huge. with the goal of <laughs> changing how people think of Chinese food in America, I was like, yes, that was my story. <laughs> and of course I'm on board. Um, uh, no, I didn't. I was like, yes, yes. I was very poised. I was like, yes, yes. I, you know, it all sounds great. Um, let me, let me do some research and get back to you. Then the coming week was the soft opening of Kitchen's Kitchen, and I met Lucas, and he served me a bowl of tomato egg noodle, oh. and I was just like, melted. I was like, oh my god, it tastes just like my grandmother's. Um, <laughs> of course, i So yeah, it was. I was working on Waterfastoria at that time at SOM, and. I started consulting with Gensee and very quickly I realized I wanted to do this full time and commit to this team and um contribute to this really crazy but um talk about the yeah. power of a bowl of
0: noodles <laughs> with know. tomato egg sauce this it is remarkable the world. here you're yeah. you're involved with building the Waldorf Astoria or the redo mm. renovation of it and uh and then you met Chef Lucas Sin, who I must say I've had his food. He is remarkable. And people should understand that we're not talking about big, fancy, elaborate restaurants. There are mm. now four in the restaurant group and they're it's considered fast casual. Yes. Uh they're near college campuses. It's reasonably priced. It is as fresh and seasonal and of the moment as it can possibly be.
1: Yeah. I I often think of like how to even explain? I, and I, I didn't realize it is something that we have to explain to people. Like, and now, you know, in, in retrospect, after like two years of work, almost two years of working with Chinese, I realized if you look at Chinese food in America, there's almost three distinctive eras. The first one was like, you know, since the 1850s, the chop soy, kind of chinese food right and that was very much about the, that wave of immigrants from china That was very much labor-based there were there were no chefs actually with but but chinese people would still have to eat so they created this alternative cuisine that came to know as at war hoppers you know chop soy and it was very very much recognized as a national dish to represent chinese food until maybe up until the 60s where um, Cecilia's legendary Mandarin. Was Cecilia Chan, a woman who
0: just turned 99 absolutely. and you did a gorgeous event for her, a, a yeah. dinner at uh, one of the Junzi restaurants. Yeah, and, she and, was, and
1: it was... She, she was so important. Nice. She's so important to, to the history of American uh, Chinese food or Chinese food in America. Cecilia Chang, um, the owner and operator of the Mandarin, um, introduced to the American audience for the first time what proper banquet style Chinese food is supposed to be. Mm. Um, it's very elegant. It's very colorful. It's full of rituals and and cultural significance and, and history and stories, both at a national level and a personal level. Mm. And there, you, if you don't know Cecilia, please Google her. She's absolutely amazing. <laughs> There's all these beautiful, you know, historic photos of, Um, the interior of the mandarin, and and her serving the guests. From San Francisco. From San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And under her influence and guidance, many young generations of Chinese chefs uh, had created their own either recipes or restaurant empires. Jun's Kitchen is also under her guidance and influence as well. She's a senior advisor on our um, advisor board. Um I didn't know that. Yeah, she wow. is very much still <laughs> talking to us and, and telling us uh the significance of what we're trying to do. Mm. Um and Cecilia's son Philip Chan created his own culinary influence called the Mandarin Net if I'm correct. It was a it's, it's a maybe the first movement towards what a homestyle Chinese food could be. It's much more casual, much more approachable. It's less about the the glamour um, of the the banquet style food. And of course, um, with the the change of economic power of China um, and immigration um, change, there's a lot of young generation people in America now cooking Sichuan food, Hunan food. So I think right now we're in this third wave of Chinese food where it's all about regional Chinese food. Mm, it's mm-hmm. getting really specific and you really have to I kind of get a map of China in your mind when it comes to appreciating food. But that's really how Chinese food is appreciated now in China. There's no so-called quote-unquote Chinese food. Right. You really very have regional. to ask yeah, which part mm-hmm. of China because Xinjiang food, the furthest west province in China, is very different from Yunnan food in central China. And Shanghainese food is
0: very different from Cantonese food. So, yeah, so it's all about regional food right now. Does anyone know how many regions there really are? Or is I, it a little bit poetic?
1: Uh, it's a good question. I'm sure some writers, I hope some writers, is working on it. China is such a big country and it's so diverse. A lot of people also don't know that other than the Han people in China, that's what you think of Chinese people when when you picture Chinese people. There's also more than 50 minority groups in China, and they have their own uh, history and ritual and spices and influences. So it's
0: really, really colorful Endeavors. and diverse. And really is about northern Chinese food It started you, off, mm-hmm, yeah, as but northern Chinese food. It's changing a little bit. It's uh yeah. expanding.
1: Yeah, we're we're working on I'm not supposed to talk about it. Oh, but do. We're, yeah, we're we're working I have, we, we always have something new work and cooking in the kitchen. No pun. Intended. <laughs> um, what we call I think we can call it Project X. So we're we're <laughs> actively looking at the Diversity and the history of Chinese food in China and cross-reference what we recently learned about American Chinese food in America and looking at these two parallel stories and maybe there will be something new. Down the road, I can't really read really, really that's yeah. that's
0: very, very exciting. Yeah. And just very quickly, you ha- the menu at Junzi is simple you have bings and bowls. Mm. Now, I'm not sure everyone knows what a bing is, mm-hmm. so can you just describe it? Yeah, I, I didn't even know what a bing was before I came, but it is Chinese, it
1: is Chinese. Yeah, it's, it's so it's a very typical northern Chinese dish, but it's further north. I think about like main attitudes versus pasta. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. A bing, or in northern China, chun bing, is a thin flour-pressed dough, unleavened. It's just two ingredients, flour and and water, and then you press it into a thin... The texture is close to a bing wrap for, like, picking duck, for example. It's Mm -hmm. very thin, very delicate, a little bit chewy, and you wrap it with... A little bit of braised meat, sauces, and every family has their own secret sauce, mm-hmm. and um, seasonal ingredients, sometimes shredded, and we have a little bit of cucumber, pickled food, and a little bit of stir fried vegetables, but it's very much about the vegetables of that season. And traditionally, it's enjoyed around the t- a table in a family, and it's really fun, especially for the kids. And this is, it means spring. So trim is traditionally eaten at the beginning of spring, say like March-ish. And um, the family will gather and the kids will grab a little bing on one hand. And with the chopsticks, they will pick, you know, whatever they want and to put into the bing. If you don't like the green vegetables, you don't have to put in a lot. And you wrap it and then you enjoy like, you know, two to three a meal. It's very typical. And I just the kitchen, we serve it two bing styles. One is whole wheat. One is just white flour bing. Yeah, you can either go for a chef-designed bing, which is uh, something that Lucas had created, or you can get creative and choose whatever you want, That's just like a Chinese kid.
0: <laughs> it sounds so delicious. <laughs> when we come back, Nikki, we want to hear more about what it is to be a woman in mm. the restaurant world and what advice you have for women who want to Uh, leave some wildly successful career they have in order to get into food and follow their (laughs) passion. And we want to hear about your legacy recipe.
1: And the gate to the garden of fulfilled desire is
0: reached by a road Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. Before we hear some of your advice for so many people who really are so in love with the food world and want to find their way in. I'm curious what's important to you now.
1: Mm. Again, this is a, a recent revelation of of understanding um, how sometimes challenging a non-mainstream, um, what could otherwise be considered as exotic food culture could be. And being a person of that culture, it could be challenging sometimes to tell a story as meaningful and accessible as we want to. So like that's always at the center of our work at Junzi. Everything we do, every, you know, seminar we host, every event we throw is, it's always around this question of, um, creating meaningful and impactful stories for people to remember by through food. And mm. for us specifically, Chinese food—that is something that just kind of again, it, I you know, the, the younger me took for granted. I just thought it, it's always something that's part of me. People, other people, should just naturally understand it, but that's not always the case. So I think, you know, um, we were lucky enough to to live in this beautiful city in New York City, where everybody is so incredibly patient and adaptable and and open-minded to try new things so we're in this really fun sandbox of playground to (laughs) to cook everything we want and and we can um, always access a part of a person or lucky you know if we're lucky a part of a culture that that we didn't have access to before Mm, so that's what we wanted to and of course being a designer I, I grew up in a family um, not only everybody cooked, but my, my dad is a builder. My mom, even though she's had taken a, accounting as a career, she, she grew up drawing and painting. So mm. I, I grew up in, a, in a, under the influence of making things. So, so mm. um, being a, at the intersection of food and design had always made, you know, made me feel I, I'm I'm at this p- really lucky position to always think about other people's needs, right? Hmm. I think uh, every architect will tell you the the significance of having the highest level of empathy possible for your users because that's at the heart of your work. Hmm. And how true is that? That's also at the heart of hospitality at restaurants. So we always want to make sure that, you know, everything we do, we do it with our guest in mind and, you know, everything we design may be food or our environment or our menu has to tell that story that's, you know, inevitably subjective, but it has to be accessible for people.
0: And you've really created an amazing environment for your staff and also your your customers. So two questions. I know you do something really interesting with some night program where the menu changes and oh, you yeah. have your staff do some of the cooking yes. or be the chefs uh, for the evening, and then I'm also curious how much influence your customers have and what what you're hearing and what they're telling you.
1: Yes, that is that is, that is a great question because when we think about hospitality and like design with you know with our users in mind, we often think about the guests. But you know, my design team actually they they of course' they they exist to serve the guest needs, but we're also there to serve the crew members and make sure their day in day out is comfortable, they're informed that they have everything they need to create the best experience we can have for our guests and it's also for you know these days it's also about our online community it's about our users on instagram on Facebook, our you know users like listening to the podcast these days, for example. (laughs) So we, for the after-hours menu, we oftentimes work with our um, shift leaders or our GMs and assistant GMs. If they have a culinary story they want to share, they can contribute to the menu. And with Lucas, um, the food team is not just Lucas himself, it's it's our food designers, and it's, it's about our store people as well. So oftentimes something will creep up to the after-hours menu or even chef's table menu under the influence of uh, our GM or assistant GM. So whoever working in our restaurant uh, with the crew team, if they have a story they want to share and have a recipe they want to share, there's always a clear path. So that's super important. And so we are now on like maybe the third generation of after-hours menu. This menu is actually heavily influenced um, influenced by a online survey we conducted through Instagram. (laughs) So we asked our users what, what you've been craving, what you would like to see for the upcoming menu. Maybe this was a year ago. So we're serving that menu now. I would say more than half of the menu items was under the influence of that survey. That is fantastic. Can you give me an idea of one um, or two dishes? That- yeah. people. So we served dumplings throughout the Chinese New Year season, and people craved for it. They were like, please make the dumpling all year round. And then we did.
0: <laughs> very cool. Yeah. Is it the same dough as bing dough, or it's different? Uh, it's very similar. It's, similar. Um,
1: it's also unleavened, and it's just boiled dumpling. Yeah. We serve it in, I hope, the whitefish and... Uh, vegetable one is still on the menu. So yeah, After Hours is coming back the weekend of September 5th. um, And what is
0: Chef's Table? Something else you Ah, referenced? Ah, (laughs) yeah.
1: Chef's Table is... So we just can't stop at serving beans and noodles, I suppose. Um, uh, Lucas, with our sometimes culinary intern and food designers, always obsessed about something and researching about something. So Chef's Table is the manifestation of their current obsession Maybe like uh, our annual travels to China, um, or it maybe it's about a collaborator story. We created meals with uh, Mofad before, mm, um, the Museum the of, Museum food, of and food and Drink, mm, um, recreating the 1972 first Nixon's visit to China and what he ate. It was it was just so fascinating, but um, we don't usually have that bandwidth to tell that story on our daily menu. So Chef's Table is this other experience. 20 guests a night, three nights in a row. So 60 people. And it's usually about six to eight courses. Mm. Sometimes there's a little bit of drink pairing. Maybe it's Baijiu, Chinese Baijiu. Mm -hmm. Super fun. And that's also an opportunity for Lucas to uh, tell a more in-depth story of Chinese
0: food. And even though you're not a chef, you are Chef Lucas's kind of alter ego helping shape him helping his food fantasies and dreams <laughs> and to come true and in that sense you are a very important part part of the food process so how would you help a young woman who wants to get into the food world mm. Or leave a very successful career in another industry to come mm. into this industry. What were some of the challenges and opportunities, mm. and what what would you say? Yeah, oh, gosh i i wish I wish Celia was here. I, I
1: mean, we live in an incredible time. Like, if I really believe, like, with all that is made available to us today, even with all of the challenges and road ahead of us we have so much more resource and people and collaborators and tools to help us, you know, make our own story. And I can't even imagine, like, when Cecilia Chan first wanted to create this restaurant called The Mandarin in the 60s and being a woman in food, in the restaurant scene, how hard it would have been. And I think things have definitely gotten I, I, I don't know if easier is the right word, but, but a lot of the otherwise impossible things has been made possible these mm. days. But one thing I think hasn't changed is about maybe perseverance. It's, it's always the one um, attitude you always have to have. I think with Table for Six or my architecture career or anything that I wanted to try, I often see myself... Like the t- the taking off time is the hardest but if you keep at it, and somehow after a year, and it somehow once twelve months is a magical number, it always mm. changes. It changes from something that you you're cooking up and dreaming about, and there's parts that not that don't fit or things that are not working, to something that's of its own. The project all of a sudden after year one has its own life. From that point on, you just have to keep on feeding it, like. A good sourdough. <laughs> you just have to keep on feeding it. You real. You have to identify what the project needs and find the right people to help you out and figure out a way to tell like what tell other people what you want. And I think asking for help is something that maybe we're not like particularly good at. But like knowing how to announce your dreams and share your mm. obsessions with people and you know gracefully take help. It's very important. I was yeah, keep at it. And year after year one, something will change.
0: <laughs> Persevere. Yeah. So beautiful. So coming full circle to uh, noodles with tomato and egg, I believe that was your legacy recipe for today. So just describe it to us. And do you know how to make it? I know you said you don't. Yeah. Uh, didn't learn how to cook really <laughs> when you were growing up. So how do you make it? Yeah, no,
1: I, I learned how to cook. Tomato egg, at least, um, <laughs> tomato egg is really the national dish of uh, the, the 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 hidden national dish of China, because t- tomato um, is available everywhere, even in the furthest west provinces in the highland, and there and eggs everywhere. Um, tomato egg is somehow made its way cutting through this beautiful section across all different kind of regional cuisines of China. Every family has their own recipe, and my family because I don't like ginger they put it they don't put don't ginger, in you don't like <laughs> ginger? so funny. um it's uh, traditionally and and as in the kitchen the tomato egg dish is built on the three aromatics of chinese food a lot of the three chinese the chinese food dishes have these three aromatics is ginger scallion and garlic um, so you start with a wok or um a Saucepan, whatever is available to you. Hot oil in. Sometimes vegetable uh, vegetable oil is preferred because it needs to be hot. Uh, if you have a olive oil that has like lower smoking point, that mm. could be a problem. And you throw in a little bit of scallion, ginger, and garlic, crushed garlic, and that's the three aromatics that contributes to the base of the of the sauce. So a lot of it does not about taste just about smell mm. um and tomato fresh tomatoes in during the season it's better just like chopped tomatoes. chopped tomatoes mm-hmm. um some families get you know a little bit more particular and peel the skin after mm. boiling but but um mine don't and if you only have access to canned tomato that's fine too mm-hmm. just don't use the like tomato stew or like charred tomato varieties just use the original kind of Whole Whole peeled tomatoes. So that's the tomato egg sauce. Um, And to create the egg, you have to have just soft soft scrambled egg on the side, cooked separately. So so it's already cooked. The egg is already already scrambled and cooked. It's just soft, uh, nothing but a little bit of oil, Mm -hmm. scrambled egg, really soft, really tender on the side. And you put the egg back into the tomato egg sauce and that's it. Oh, and then that gets <laughs> tossed with noodles. Yes. Well, uh, again, like how this dish is enjoyed differs a little bit in China. So, in southern regions, it's only almost exclusively eaten with rice, and if you say you eat it with noodles, they think you're crazy. But in <laughs> northern regions, it's it's often eaten with noodles. <laughs> yeah.
0: So interesting. Thank you for sharing that recipe. It has been such a pleasure to be yeah. with you, Nikki. There's. <laughs> So much more to talk about. But uh, one question I do ask everyone is this. What does one woman kitchen mean to you? Uh,
1: I, again, like I, I think about when I was eight years old, my father, his work took him to Xinjiang, to the furthest west province in China. So we're, like, one full country away from each other for two years. Mm -hmm. And my mother, being the youngest sister of the family, had to learn how to cook. Mm -hmm. So guess what? I ate a lot of tomato egg noodles (laughs) because that was her first recipe. And she learned to cook more and, like, you know, seeing her, you know, juggle between her full-time job and more and taking care of me and I was sick a lot those days and her cooking tomato egg in the converted kitchen of our apartment building was something I always remember and you know now I've like my my career in architecture and design had taken me to travel the world. And I've seen so many similar stories, mm. women, you know, working or studying and trying to raise a family and, you know, learning their way in and out of the kitchen and these simple but beautiful recipes is just amazing. Yeah, maybe, maybe one day, like, I always remember when I was traveling in Italy or Denmark, Every single family I stayed with has a similar story. Yeah, that's something I often think about when I think about One Woman Kitchen.
0: Thank you so much. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for joining me, Nikki. And thanks to all of you for joining Nikki and me in my kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2019. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at rosannegold.com. And if you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden. Written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and Connect.